You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the scripture reading this morning. Acts 2, 1-41. We also find our text for this morning in this reading, verses 40-41. to well, we begin reading at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And here's our text, verses 40 and 41. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Beloved congregation, Christ our Lord. Many years ago, Christian preachers were regarded as some of the most important people in the world, most influential. Long time ago, perhaps before the time of most, if not all of us, you could buy a newspaper like the Vancouver Sun and there would be sermons from local ministers pr printed in the newspaper. Preaching that took place in churches on Sunday had a huge influence in how people thought about things in general. It hardly needs to be said that today things are quite a bit different. A number of years ago, I remember reading about a survey a survey where the question was asked, who do you trust? What sorts of people do you find trustworthy? And the survey showed that people trusted politicians and criminal defense lawyers far more than they did Christian ministers. In fact, ministers of the gospel were near the bottom of the list, keeping company with the prostitutes and drug dealers. The men who preach and preaching itself has little credibility today. Yet here in this church, we still insist on preaching. About half our worship service is taken up with it. We say that we believe that preaching is the most important thing that happens in our worship services. The pulpit is front and center. Because we believe that preaching is to be central. And our church architecture reflects that. And why is that? Well, one could say that it's part of our tradition. More than that, it's a tradition 
that is biblical. The Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus works through the preaching of the Gospel. The classic passage here is Romans 10.14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And then Paul goes on to say in verse 17, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. When the Scriptures are preached, Christ works with His Word and Spirit to create faith and repentance. He does it to work mind-blowing change in the lives of sinners like you and me. And we see this happening in our text for this Pentecost Sunday as well. On that first Pentecost, after Christ's ascension, amazing things happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. The believers started speaking in different languages so that Jews from all over the world could understand and they could believe the good news about Christ. When this happened, Christ's enemies were there too. And they began to mock and insult the disciples, saying that they were drunk. Peter stood up and he used the opportunity to deliver his first sermon as an apostle. It was a long one. Even though what we have in Acts 2 is just a summary, we can be sure that it was a longer sermon. But it was effective. The author of the book of Acts, who is Luke, tells us that some of the people were cut to their hearts by what Peter said. And they believed the Gospel. And they asked what they had to do. And Peter told them they had to repent. They had to have a new way of thinking, a change of heart. But not only that, they also had to be baptized. And they too would receive the Holy Spirit. In our text, Peter continues to speak, to preach. And so I preach God's Word to you this Pentecost morning with this theme, Jesus Christ uses Peter's passionate Pentecost preaching to produce faith and repentance in the covenant people. And we'll consider, first of all, Peter's message. We'll do that as we, we look at verse 40. And then we'll also consider the response as we look at verse 41. The first thing we need to consider very carefully here is the identity of the people to whom Peter is speaking. Verse 40 says that Peter warned them and pleaded with them. Begs the question, who are them? And the answer to that is earlier in the chapter in verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. In other words, these weren't just plain vanilla Roman Empire type people. These were God's covenant people. These were the people to whom God had come with the promises of a Messiah who would save them from their sins. And when Christ came into the world, these were the people among whom He primarily worked and who He taught among and who He preached among. And what did they do with His teaching? And what did they do with His preaching? Well, some believed, but not very many. The rest of them, His enemies, decided to kill Him 
by handing him over to the Romans to be crucified. Those are the people that Peter was preaching to on that Pentecost morning. And in his preaching, we can take note of two things. His style and his content. With respect to his style, in the first place, Peter was emphatic. Luke, as I mentioned, doesn't tell us all the words that Peter used. Instead, he summarizes. He tells us that Peter warned them and he pleaded with them. He didn't preach as if he could care less about his listeners. He didn't say, well, you know, here's the message. It's been good for me. But, you know, you, you, you can take it or leave it. It's up to you. I don't really care what you, what you do with it one way or another. Oh, he preached with feeling. Peter preached out of his heart because he cared. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Peter was a man with strong emotions. And Christ used those emotions as Peter was preaching. He would have preached strongly and passionately. He warned them. He said, this is the wrong way to go. You can't go down this road of unbelief. Peter was a preacher who cared, who had a heart for the people. And today, preachers have to be the same way. One of the Puritans, don't remember which one at the moment, said that he always made it his goal to preach as a dying man to dying men. Ministers of the Gospel must still care deeply not only about what they preach, but also about those to whom they preach. That's the kind of preaching that Christ used on that first Pentecost. That's the kind of preaching He'll still continue to use today. So Peter was emphatic in his style, but he was also persuasive. The words that he used that day, they cut people to the heart. We can attribute that persuasive power the fact that he preached the Word of God. Most of Peter's Pentecost sermon is made up of quotes from the Old Testament and then applications and interpretations of those quotes showing how they relate to what happened on Pentecost and how they relate to what happened with Christ in His death and resurrection. Peter wasn't persuasive because he was a clever logician who knew how to put a proper syllogism together with premises and a conclusion. He was a relatively unschooled fisherman. He was persuasive because he preached the Word. And Christ spoke through that means. Today, too, persuasive preaching that will be used by Christ must simply be the preaching of the Word. And that preaching may often involve the use of logic, reasoning, and rhetoric. The apostles used those things too. You see that especially with somebody like Paul. But at its root, it always has to be the preaching of Scripture, of God's Word. So Peter was emphatic. He was persuasive. But he was also authoritative in his style. He made bold declarations, such as the one in verse 36. 
God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He made bold commands, such as the one in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter, along with the other apostles, had been deputized by Christ to be His heralds and ambassadors, officially and authoritatively proclaiming the Gospel and its demands. With his authoritative style, Peter was acting as a representative of Christ, a minister of Christ. In a very real way, we can say that he was being the mouth of Christ at that moment. And today, preachers have likewise been deputized to be Christ's representatives, to be His mouth. Ministers of the Gospel should never shy away from boldly declaring what Scripture declares and commanding what Scripture commands. Okay, but now you say, what does that have to do with us? We're not preachers. We haven't been called to be ministers of the Gospel. That's true. But still, there is still something here. Two points. What we read here about Peter's style does affect how we regard the preaching of the Gospel. We should expect and we should even demand emphatic, persuasive, and authoritative preaching from our pastors. And if, if, for instance, my preaching doesn't fit with that apostolic style, I want to know about it. And I want to change it. And when, when we do get preaching in that style, we should accept it. And we should thank God for it. That's the first point. The second point is that even though we're not called to be ministers of the Gospel preaching the Word in an official capacity, we are all, every single one of us, called to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus, both in how we talk and in how we live. When people see our lives and hear our words, no one should ever have a good reason to mock Christ and His church. Well, they may still do that, but we should never give them a good reason to do it. In our being good witnesses for the Lord, out of thankfulness for what He's done, out of deep love for what He's done, we have to show too that we care deeply about other people. If others don't see our love, they see that we care about them, they won't easily be drawn to the Lord. There's a saying, and perhaps you've heard it before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If outsiders see a church full of people who couldn't give a rip about them, they're not going to want to come here, be among us as we worship and as we fellowship together. So in our care for others, we're called to follow Peter. Not because Peter was Peter, not because he was such a great man. We know that he was a sinner. Even later on in the book of Acts and later on in the New Testament, Paul had to rebuke Peter. He's a sinner. We're called to follow Peter here because he followed Christ and because Christ was working through him. 
And more than anybody else in Scripture, the Lord Jesus loved people and He cared for them. And because we have union with Him, like Peter did, we too will love people. We'll show this in our words and deeds. We'll show this in our witness. Well, now that we've, we've looked at Peter's style and how Christ used that, let's now look at the content of his message. At least as it's recorded for us briefly in our text this morning. Luke only gives a short summary of what Peter preached at this exact moment. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Well, we can see two things in those words. First of all, connecting with Peter's authoritative style, this is a command. Peter tells the people what they have to do. And he tells them in a way that shows that he has been sent by Christ. He doesn't give them an invitation. He doesn't say, now, Jewish people, won't you please consider Jesus? I invite you to come forward and give your life to Him. That's not what Peter says. Instead, he says, let yourselves be saved from this crooked or corrupt generation. Be saved. That's God's command. You might disobey, but you're not allowed to disobey. If the people didn't listen, if we don't listen, there would be bad consequences. The second thing we can see here with the content is that Peter told the people to be saved from this crooked. We could also translate that corrupt generation. Those are special words and they come from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in passages like Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, and Psalm 78, verse 8, these words were used to describe the people of Israel in times of unfaithfulness. When the people of Israel abandoned their faith, when they broke the covenant, these words, a crooked generation, were used to describe them. The same thing was happening on and before that Pentecost morning. In the ultimate act of rebellion, God's own people had killed His Son. And to add insult to injury, many of them turned their backs on the good news. They plotted ways to distort and refute the resurrection of Christ and so on. Peter told the people who would listen to be saved from these evil people. After all, these people had broken the covenant with their unbelief and their unwillingness to listen. The Lord Jesus Himself said it so clearly in Luke 12.48, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Turning their backs on all that, would arouse God's covenant wrath and curses. If people did not believe Peter's preaching, the message of Christ proclaimed through the mouth of this apostle, they would be in serious trouble with God. They had to be saved from God's wrath against covenant breakers. And the way they could be saved was by believing what Peter was preaching, or, or better yet, who Peter was preaching. Verse 41 tells us that there were some indeed who 
believed the message. Thankfully, they accepted it for what it was. The Word of God. They recognized the voice of the shepherd. And they were glad to hear it. And they warmly welcomed it. Responding with a true faith. They repented. In other words, they had a change of thinking. They had a change of heart about their sins. They had a change of heart about who Jesus is. They were sorry that they had put Him on the cross. They recognized it for the injustice, the wrong that it was. They repented and believed. We're told that the number of people who accepted the message that day and those who were baptized came out to about 3,000 people. Suddenly, through the preaching of Christ, or through the preaching of Peter, rather, Christ made His church explode with new spiritual life and numerical growth. And today, Christ continues to use the preaching of the Word to bring people to faith and repentance. And when that message is preached, it forces us, all of us, to consider what we're going to do with it. Should we ignore it? Should we pretend that we didn't hear? Should we pretend that it wasn't clear enough? Should we think that the message is for somebody else, it's not for, for me? Or shall we accept it in faith and believe it as the Word of God? In the Old Testament, God had His special covenant people with the Jews. Today, we are part of His special covenant people. Almost all, if not all, of us have received the sign and seal of God's covenant in holy baptism. Like the Jews of old, God holds out rich and wonderful promises to all of us. And all He says is, Believe Me. Believe in My Son whom I sent. We're called to listen carefully to the preaching of the Gospel as it comes to us time and again. Listen to it and believe it. And if we refuse to listen, and we go on in that refusal, let it be clear that serious trouble is in store. The promises of the covenant are beautiful. They're wonderful. But the curses, loved ones, they're more terrible than you can imagine. Though it's not nice to hear, it would be irresponsible and it would be unloving for me to leave this out. Especially since this was an important part of what happened on that Pentecost morning in our text. All of us, just like the Jews on that day, all of us need to hear both the promises of God's Word and also its warnings. One of the most powerful passages of warning is found in Christ's words in Matthew 10. For any number of reasons, we often think that homosexual behavior is a rather disgusting thing. We know the Bible condemns it. God says it's an abomination. Well, He also says that about many other sins. But somehow we have the idea that this is pretty much the worst sin 
that a person could possibly do. And if it's not the worst, then it's certainly one of the most disgusting. But the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that there is a sin worse than sodomy. Worse, much worse than homosexual behavior. There is a sin that will receive far harsher punishment, that will receive the brunt end of God's wrath rougher than any other sin. In Matthew 10, Christ sends out the twelve to the lost sheep of Israel, to their towns and villages. He didn't send them to the Gentiles. He sent them to the Jews, to God's covenant people. And as the twelve preached, they could expect two responses. People would either listen or they wouldn't. Verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 10 describe what would happen with those who did not listen. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. Then listen carefully to these words. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. You understand that? Sodomites will get off easier in God's wrath than those covenant people who were blessed with so much and yet turned their backs on the preaching of Christ. Let's make this concrete. You can have a person who was baptized, who was raised in the church, sat under the preaching of the Word for many years, taught catechism by the minister, went through all the, the years of catechism, But as he got older, he decided that religion wasn't for him. He wasn't interested in being a Christian. He wasn't interested in all the commitments that it involves. Left the church. But he remained a moral person. If there was a survey, he'd say that he disapproves of gay marriage. He disapproves of homosexual behavior and abortion and all sorts of other societal evils. Nonetheless, Christ says that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the homosexuals than for that man if he dies in his unbelief. One more example, just in case we're feeling a bit smug. After all, we haven't left the church, have we? We're here every Sunday keeping a pew warm. Imagine someone like yourself. But as he sits in church each and every Sunday... The gospel hits a brick wall. He will not believe the good news. It goes in one ear and out the other. He goes to church because it's the thing to do if you want to stick in our community or for for some other reason. Don't be mistaken. Christ's words also apply. Loved ones, and again, it would be irresponsible and unloving of me if I didn't tell you this. Let that be a solemn warning for each and every one of us. Believe the Gospel now. Accept the Gospel promises signed and sealed to you in your baptism. As often as you hear that good news, accept it and believe it. Let yourself be saved from this crooked generation. And when we do that, there's such good news. The promise of the good news becomes a reality 
That reality is glorious and wonderful. And it includes what we read in John 1 verse 12. John says that the Jews on the whole, they didn't receive Christ. He came to His own, but they did not receive Him or welcome Him. But then in verse 12, beautiful words. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Let those words apply to us. Let's pray. Eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the good news is so good and so beautiful, and we're so grateful for it. We're so rich with Your covenant promises. Father, You promised to adopt us for Your children and heirs. You promised to provide us with everything good and turn away everything bad or at least make it work for our benefit. Lord Jesus, You promised that You would wash us in Your blood from all our sins and unite us with Yourself in Your death and resurrection. Holy Spirit, You promised to dwell in us and make us living members of Christ. Lord God, we're so humbled. Who are we and who are our children that You should give us such beautiful promises? And we thank You for the regular preaching of those promises. We thank You for the good news that we can hear each Sunday. Help all of Your covenant people to embrace that good news and accept the promise. Help all of us to be saved from a crooked generation that turns its back on Your promises. Lord God, give us more grace with Your Holy Spirit so that we would listen to the preaching of the Gospel and believe it. And we pray that the Gospel may be preached here faithfully, emphatically, persuasively, and authoritatively. Father, we want to hear the voice of Christ our Lord and Savior. May the preaching of our Savior penetrate our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. Lord God, we earnestly pray. We ask that none of us would fall under Your covenant curses but that each one of us would receive the blessings promised. And we bring this prayer to You, not for our own benefit, but because we care deeply about the glory of Your name. And we pray in Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.